I invite you to take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 4. This morning we'll study verses 13 through 15. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. If you're visiting with us this morning, you may be unfamiliar with the uh, culture of our church. We study through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books. And the reason why that is, is we believe that the Lord has ordained and inspired both the words themselves and their order, that the Lord is good to us if we read his word sequentially. And so we have studied the book of Romans from chapter 1, verse 1, up until this morning, all the way to chapter 4, and we'll take up verses 13 through 15. In chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is teaching on the doctrine of justification. And that may be strange language to you, but that simply means how it is that a man or a woman may be made right before the face of God, the holy God of heaven, and how a sinner may stand before him. And the Apostle Paul is here in chapter 4 giving evidences that that is simply by faith. How is a person made right with God or accounted righteous? By believing in his holy son, Jesus Christ. And that alone. It's not faith plus works, not faith plus family lineage, not faith plus sacraments. It's not faith plus anything. It is simple faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're taking it up again. And in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is not just making that point as if it's a philosophical or truly and specifically theological point, he is making it through the scriptures. So far we've already seen him touch upon the strongholds of the Jewish religion. Firstly, in the beginning of the chapter, Abraham, the father of the faith, that Abraham was accounted as righteous by his faith. And then... In verses 7 and 8, he touches upon great King David, whom he simply just calls David. That David also believed in this righteousness that is had by faith. In verses 9 through 12, he touches upon circumcision. That it is not by the act of circumcision that a person is counted righteous, but rather through the faith that a person has in the God who has ordained circumcision. And now, here we come yet again, and in verses 13 and 15, he regards the promises of God's covenant. The promises of God's covenant. So let's read verses 13 through 15 together. We'll study them and ask the Lord to bless us through it. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. For the promise to Abraham... And his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we have heard your word. 
Give us understanding, we pray. Lord, help us to have receptive minds and hearts. Oh, Lord, shine light upon your word. Oh, Lord, help us to understand this teaching. Help us to rejoice in Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to know simply the kindness, the grace, and the mercy of his cross as his body was pierced and his blood poured out. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three things I want us to see from the passage this morning. Uh, And the first of them from verse 13 is this, that the promise was and is by faith. The promise was and is by faith. Secondly, in verse 14, that our best efforts are null and void. Our best efforts are null and void. And in verse 15, that apart from grace, the law accuses us. That apart from grace, the law accuses us. Something to note is that when we come to this passage of Scripture, this is a portion of Paul's greater teaching. Uh, I'm careful to use this language, but you maybe understand me whenever I say this is his argument for a doctrinal point. Not as if he's arguing or bickering in a bitter way, one person to another person, but rather he is teaching or making logical points. And so when we come and we have just verses 13 through 15, we're in the middle of his argument. And all of these things are, are interlocked. And so if you heard the reading of this text and you think, wow, it, it kind of just seems like there's a lot more to be said about it. Uh, you feel that way because there is more to be said about it. There's context. There's context of all the verses that have come before. And certainly the context of the argument continues on in verse 16. I do want to tell you that as a preacher, one of the things that I feel as a biblical expositor, exegete, is that this is challenging. Uh, This isn't lined out as if verses 13 through 15 ought to themselves be three points of a sermon. Some texts are quite easy. They have uh, textual coherence like that. But this one uh, specifically is interrelated. And so you should understand that the points of the sermon, they're not just ripped apart and there's just this one word and this next word and this third word but rather these are interdependent you should consider Paul to be an intelligent man who makes a logical argument from the Bible that coheres it sticks together and so if you feel awkward with it for a moment just simply know so do I Uh, a thing to say though is that whenever Paul comes again to his teaching He's looking to the Old Testament, and the reason why Paul does this in all of chapter 4 is that he's speaking to a diverse church, just like our church is diverse. This church in Rome, and the church in Rome is made up generally of two different groups of people. There are the Jewish Christians, those who have come from a Jewish background that that know the law, that have books of the Bible memorized, that had a bar mitzvah, bait mitzvah with the coming of age, uh, the boys who had received circumcision and the girls who had gone to synagogue. And he's speaking to them because they have come into faith in Jesus Christ. They're Jewish Christians. And he's also speaking to another group, the Gentiles. And 
I think sometimes we hear the language of Gentile people and we think that's just one, you know, group. But really, a Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish. It's the rest of the honking world, really. It's a large designation. And so there are these Gentilic Christians that don't come from a Jewish background that could be any sort of person from any place, any nation. They could be sub-Saharan African, they could be Northern European, they could be uh, Turkish. It doesn't matter, they're still in that group. And then these uh, Jewish Christians who have found faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's writing to them. But he doesn't come to them on the evidence of his own authority. As if he said, just hear me, I'm the pastor. Don't you people all know that I studied theology for decades and decades? Memorizing so much of the biblical text in its original language. My brain is this big, so you should trust me and listen to me. That's not at all his point. Instead, he knows that if he will speak with authority, he can only speak by the word of God. And so that's where he points them. He points them to the Old Testament to teach them about Jesus. And about the faith that we have in Jesus. He wants them to hear the word of God with its authority that it might bear fruit in the heart. And the thing that he's teaching is this. We are made righteous. We are declared righteous by faith alone. By faith alone. And in this section, he has two new things that he wants to introduce to us. The first of them, these concepts, these two concepts, the first concept is, The promise of God. The promise of God. And then the second concept is the inheritance of God. The promise of God and then the inheritance of God. And so the promise in verse 13, that's where it begins. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Uh, What's the promise? I mean, we've heard this. He said it. There is a promise, but what is it? Well, you have just a brief explanation with the phrase that Paul uses here. The promise to Abraham and his offspring, that. The promise is that he would be the heir of the world. That's a strange way to say it. It's, It's poetic, certainly. It's full of meaning, quite obviously, and whenever he says this and writes this to these original readers, there's some context, especially uh, for the Jewish readers of the passage of Scripture. Maybe the context is, I think, in a larger uh, format. Uh, Genesis chapter 17, that first book of the Bible that records the story of Abraham. In verses 4 through 6 of Genesis 17, the Lord promises that Abraham will be made the father of a multitude of nations. That's an incredible promise. And this makes a lot of sense, that he will be the heir of the world. You see, these two things kind of line up. The heir, the one who has an inheritance to give, and that he would give it to the whole world. Because the description of the multitude of the nations is expansive in the Old Testament. That there will be people from every tongue and every tribe who proclaim the name of the God of heaven. But what's the promise? 
Well, there's a portion. I think there's also another portion in verse 22, or sorry, Genesis chapter 22, uh, verses 17 and 18. And I'll read it to you, and you'll hear this in even a greater and more expanded fashion. This is God's promise to Abraham. I will greatly multiply your seed, or your offspring, as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So there's the promise of offspring, numerous offspring. And all the kids in the room who've been studying Abraham... You can remember this lesson. God's promise was that his children would be more even than the stars in the night sky and so many more than even could be counted of the grains of sand on every beach and all of the seashore on all the earth. That's an enormous promise. But the second portion, that in the seed of Abraham... As the New Testament tells us, this seed is one. It's singular and has reference to Jesus. That in this seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The second portion of the promise is blessing that will come to all people through the seed of Abraham. The specific man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that expands it a little bit and we, I think, get a little bit of a larger picture. Well, we also have this third portion of the promise in Genesis chapter 17. If we go back a little bit and we take the very next verse, something I want to outline to you. Genesis 17, verse 7. The Lord promises to Abraham this. He says, I will keep my promise to you and to your descendants in future generations as an everlasting covenant. I will be your God And the God of your descendants. Do you hear this? This is large. And there's promise upon promise. It's it's layered and wonderful. It's like the petals on the flower that are just blooming in the season. And that gets more beautiful in the way you look at it. And it smells wonderful as you consider it. He says, I will keep my promise to you. Don't overlook that quickly. God says, I have sworn and I will keep. Now that makes good sense, doesn't it? If you make me a promise, whose responsibility is it to keep the promise? Yours. If I make you a promise, whose responsibility is it to keep the promise? Mine. Well, this is wonderful because the promise is large and it's wonderful in all of its blessings. And it's the thing that the Lord is saying he will do and that he will be the one that keeps it. He's not only going to give you the blessing, but he will be the one that keeps the promise. And one more layer of this, one more petal on the flower is that he will be their God and the God of all of his descendants. And you say, well, pastor, you've just given us a lot of promises There's all of this. This is not just one thing. It's five things, right? It seems like it's just one thing on top of another thing on top of another thing. And I want to tell you, yes, friends, that's how the promise of God works. 
The Lord doesn't take away from it, but he adds to it. He continues to bless and continues to make it more beautiful and continues to express himself. And he is saying as if he is a husband to a wife, I love you. I love your hair. I love your eyes. I love your hands. I love your voice. I love your laughter. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And that is the testimony of his promises and all of their wonderful portions. So what is the promise? Well, I think at the very heart of this, if we take it and bring it all the way down to just one point, it is that God will love these people and these people will have fellowship with him. That's an enormous promise. And it's specifically important to us because if we understand ourselves, we have to understand our failings. We've confessed our sins this morning. We've done it personally, silently. We've done it corporately. And to do that, we have to ask questions of our own hearts. We have to be honest about our own hearts, don't we? About the things we haven't done and then the things that we've done that we shouldn't have done. We have to simply face this fact that if it's up to us, if, if we're going to be a people beautiful, beautiful before God, a people loved before God, how could we ever do that in ourselves? If I'm honest, I know the ugliness of my soul. I know the, the horrible things I think, the horrible things I say, the horrible things I love, the wickedness even of my affections. How is this going to be? How can these promises be if he reconciles me to him? That's the only way. If he makes peace between me and him when I have made war. If he gives reconciliation where all I have given to him is rebellion. That's the only way. And that's right, deep, and essential in the promise of verse 13. And what Paul wants to say again what Paul wants to say again is that that promise, that reconciliation, that peace is only because faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He believed in the Lord and his promises and the Lord said to him, you are righteous. It's not because of the things Abraham did. It's not because of the things Abraham failed to do. But rather, it is because the Lord was pleased to account to him. As if money is transferred from one bank account to the other. Righteousness. That Abraham could stand before him. But friends, the larger point is this. It's not only that this promise was by faith, but it remains and still is by faith. That's that's the big point that Paul has here. It's not that just Abraham was counted as righteous by his faith, but also all of those who are in him who have received the promise. All of his descendants. All of those who would be, in any sense, included in him, called children of Abraham. They remain a people in need of righteousness. And the promises are still yes 
and amen and true to them if they would have faith in the living God of heaven and in specific his son Jesus Christ. And so what am I saying to you this morning? It's this. All of those promises we read, those are to you. They're offered to you this morning. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, these are things that are your possession. It's the design on the signet ring of your sonship. It's the language of the table in the household of your father. If you believe in Jesus, you have these wonderful promises of reconciliation, the reassurance of the love of God. And I want to tell you that if you don't know Christ this morning, if you don't know Christ, and you're here this morning and this is all new to you and you've never heard this sort of thing, you don't consider yourself a Christian, I want to tell you this. This is offered to you freely. It's offered to you by faith. Our God does not say, here are ten things you need to do before you can come to me. Our God doesn't say, you know, see... There, right on your coat, there is the the soil of your rebellion and your sin. You need to go clean that off before you can come into my house. You've got mud on your feet. Go wash it before you can come in. Rather, he says, believe in my son. Believe in my son and live. It's simple. It's not a new law. It's the free offer of Jesus Christ who died for sinners. And so you're offered him this morning and I would plead with you, receive him. Receive him by faith. The simple reliance of the heart of a person on Jesus for salvation. The second thing I want us to see in verse 14 as Paul continues in his argument, in his discussion, description, however you want to call it, is that our best efforts are null and void. Paul making the point Abraham received the promise by faith, had access to the promise, assurance of the promise by faith, and then he continues on. He says in verse 14, this this, um, logical deduction, he says, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. You could translate this, I think, in logical terms, like this, you could insert uh, a therefore. For if it is the adherents of the law uh, who are to be the heirs of faith, or, or who are to be the heirs, therefore, or then, faith is null and the promise is void. You see, when he poses verse 14, he's already denied it in verse 13. That's the thing that immediately precedes it. He's already said, that we are a people who receive the promise of this inheritance by faith. It's already been said. And so what is he getting at here? Well, in verse 14, he's simply saying that faith and legalism or works of the law are things that don't go together. They're antithetical. They're two separate ends. They contradict one another. They're not to be in the same place. And I want to explain this and express this to you just in case it's um, in any way uh, unclear. He says simply this, if the inheritance 
of the promise uh, relies upon or comes through the keeping of the law, that then we have no hope or no access to the promises of God. And these two parts, he says, if it's all about what you do, all about your keeping of the law, then there is no role for faith. Your faith is null. It's like a zero, as it were. As if faith is an empty hope. Because if you're working for these things, if you're working to receive an inheritance, is it really an inheritance? I mean, is it really an inheritance? Let me, let me, let me put it in, into these terms. If a, if a parent was to say to their child, I've got something wonderful that I'm going to give you. Um, I'm not going to tell you everything of what it is, but it's wonderful and you're going to want it. And I'm going to give it to you. It's going to be a gift from me to you. But here's the catch. You need to work six days a week, ten hours a day, every single one of those days throughout the course of your life. Until I die, you need to work. And every paycheck that you get from every hour, every second of that work, you need to take that paycheck and then give it to me. And I'm going to hang on to it. And then at the end of it all, I'm going to use that to purchase for you that wonderful gift, that thing I'm going to give you. I'm going to purchase it with your money, and then when I die, you can have it. Does that sound like a gift? Does that sound like an inheritance? It sounds like a government scheme, doesn't it? Almost. You're going to work hard, I'm going to take it from you, and then I'm going to give it back to you, and you're going to say thank you. Really, you ought to just say simply, no, that's my money. Those are my paychecks. That's what I deserve. That was my sweat on my brow. That was the aches in my back. Are you silly? Why would I invest my money in your hands for you could give me a gift and then make me thank you for what I've done? Paul says it's silliness. It's not an inheritance if that's what it is. It's simply pay. He's already established that earlier in chapter 4. Verse 5. No, you know, and he says, and if that's the case, if it's by the deeds and the works of the law, then then where's faith? You know, we can sort of say these things that, you know, it's you work, but then you have to believe and have faith and that that's a part of it and all. But really, it doesn't make any sense at all. There's no room for faith. There's no role of faith. It would be empty hope in a thing that you already have. So the faith would be null. And the second thing he says, moreover, the promise would be void. The promise would be void. It wouldn't be a promise anymore. It would just be what you deserve. It wouldn't have any evidence of that I also want to say this whenever Paul says this he says this within the context of the reality of the hearts of humanity of men women and children whenever he says this it's not just simply under those two headings and in the way I just described it but it's well it's in a more desperate picture for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs And faith is null and the promise is void. He is simply saying this. If it relies on you to keep the law, then friends, you will never, ever, 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 ever have any hope of having an inheritance. There's no hope. It's an impossible thing. 
why would I say that? And why would Paul say that? And it's simply this. Our hearts are fallen and sinful. The best works that we do are still self-seeking, self-serving, self-righteous. They're not towards the Lord. We are a people ill-equipped for the completion of the task. It's like... It's like saying to a child who has desperate need of corrective surgery for a handicap and a disability, you can have that, I'll pay for it all. But with those legs that don't work and that back and that spine that's crooked and desperately broken, you can have it, but you're going to have to take those crippled feet and you're going to have to run a marathon to receive it at the end. Sure, it's a free offer. Theoretically, it's there, but realistically, it's utterly impossible to achieve. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil and evil continually. You may not this morning want to face the reality of your own heart and your soul, but the Word of God testifies plainly about us. It testifies to the desperate state of who we are. This is one of those essential statements, and by that I don't mean it must be had. I mean it regards the essence of a person, that the intention of the thoughts of the heart are evil. Can you reduce anything in your mind down that deeply? This is a, a, a statement that attempts to be irreducible, if you will. It's like saying in many words simply this, at your deepest, you are still at your worst. And Paul is saying if it relies on the works of the law for you to have an inheritance and the promise is void. The offer is not real. There's then therefore no hope. I wonder if this illustration will work well. Um, in the United States there are these games that sometimes occupy uh, the front area of a store like a claw machine. And it's, kinda, it's a kid's way to gamble, frankly. It's, you know, it's really not a good thing. But they're the, these claw machines, and it's, you know, it's a big box, and it's got this silver claw, and you've got a little joystick that you control. It goes back and forth on an XY axis, and you've got all these stuffed animals or candies or whatever it is, prizes, jammed in there, and they're stuffed in there tight, or maybe they're glued to the bottom, however it was that the person set it up. And, and it looks as if, you know, that, that claw, oh, it's got to be strong. It's made out of steel. You know, it's, this looks easy. You know, I can control it. I can see through the glass and all of this sort of stuff. And look how full. There are teddy bears on teddy bears. There's a Superman. Oh, look, there's a Star Wars character. I want that one. And let me say, my son's going to the United States seeing these things. It's been a while since we've really been living in the States, my boys were entranced by the claw machine. We go into the store, Dad, I want that one. There's a Pikachu in the back corner. I want that one. He's easy to get. Look, Dad, look, Dad, look, Dad, please, Dad, please. It's only $2. 
Please, Dad, you could just get it for me. It's there. It'll be a prize. We'll win that thing. What's the reality? It's not a fair offer, is it? That claw is weak. It has no tensile strength. And all of those things are glued to the bottom. It's a sham. It's a sham. And all it's going to leave the person that it gives it the greatest attempt with is an empty pocket and hands empty and a jaded heart. Look at what I didn't get. A promise like that, an inheritance offer like that is little more than cruelty and insincere promises. Null and void. And you hear that? And you might say, well, wow, that's harsh. That's intense. Paul says, yeah, that's the point. Because apart from the free offer of Jesus Christ, that's your best hope. And it's hopeless. But in Jesus, there is the free offer of reconciliation by faith. It's not this prize you have to pay for even though you can never get it. It's not that at all. It's, this, it's Him and His righteousness. You can stand before the Father without paying, without making a purchase, without price. You can have the prize as an inheritance and as a true gift. That's Paul's point. And then he goes on and in Verse 15, we have this uh, last point, and he's instructing about the law. And it's as if he's taking these brothers and sisters like a, a parent would do to the cheeks of a child. You can tell I've got all these illustrations because I've been with my sons all week. Um, he's just holding them by the face, and he's saying this. The law is not what you think it is. It's not what you think it is. Let's read verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The Jewish people and the Jewish Christians in this church, they had this misunderstanding that they thought that righteousness comes from the law. They can be right with God if only they just do the right things. If they keep the law in all of its letter they fulfill it. If they show up, if they're circumcised, uh, bet mitzvah, mitzvah, bat mitzvah, all that sort of thing, bar mitzvah, all of it. Just by being people in Israel, just by being the people of God, who their dad was, their mom was, and the whole lineage, and that's why you have these incredible lineages established in the Bible, all through it. Such and such, begat, 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 and your ears just pop off with all the different hard-to-pronounce names in the Old Testament that are even then sometimes repeated in the New. All of these different things that are being held in the heart of these people, and, and Paul simply wants to say, friends, you just don't understand that's not how the law works. And, you know, there is this uh, correction that Paul attempts here with these people, and it's as if he's simply saying, have you ever really read the law? You know, you and I like laws, don't we? Generally. We like laws. We believe they make an orderly society. They protect us. We make that assumption. They protect us. We certainly hope they protect us. But when is it that we don't like laws? Well, when the police officer is reading the line of the law against you. And you're hearing with your ears the very things that you have committed against the law and having broke the law. 
And so whenever Paul says and writes in verse 15, for the law brings wrath, that's as if he's saying simply this, if you knew the law, you would know that you're accountable to it and that you've transgressed it. (laughs) It wouldn't be a thing that you would presume to hide under. Rather, if you examined your heart, it would be a thing that would simply loudly say to you, you are guilty and you deserve punishment. You know, see, I don't think we're that much different at all if we are different in any way today. I think that people like to think of themselves as good people. I certainly like to tell myself that lie all the time. You're a good guy. You look good in the mirror, even though I know that's not true. Uh, This constant thing of we want to be good people, be thought of as good people, Um, this secular virtue that we want to take upon ourselves and convince ourselves that, you know, it's probably the case. I'm such a good person, such a good man, woman, child. I could stand before God and he'd probably agree with me because of how good I am. Paul wants you to simply ask the question, can you read the law of God? Just in the expression in the Ten Commandments, And feel like you have ground upon which to stand. You shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever hoped in something else as your security? A storm is brewing outside. It's a real storm. There's a tornado. There's hail. It's it's raining shards of ice. You just fill in the, the thing. And you say, well, I'm safe because I know... I'm inside my house. My house is strong. People where I grew up learned that their houses were not that strong whenever Katrina came through and blew their houses completely off the foundations. Maybe it's in money. Well, the economy is going terrible. Well, I lost my job. Well, something, this, that, or another thing has happened. But I'm safe. I'm okay. I'm hiding in. What? My bank account. We're all right. We're safe. We're good. Maybe it's a profession. Well, everybody else, all these other things are going poorly, this or that or the other. But at least I always have the hope of employment. I'm a doctor and people are always going to be sick. I'm an engineer and people are always going to need engineers to sort out the crazy problems of life. This, that, or the other. The things that we put our faith in, the things we hide in, the things we idolize as our safeties and our securities that are powerless to help us where our simple testimony ought to be. The world around me can be a flaming ball of fire, but my God, my God in heaven is my my security. That's not always the thing on our lips and especially not on our hearts. You shall not make any graven image. Have we broken that? Have we idolized a thing or made use of something that is intended to look like God, to be like God, but is itself not God? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Have you ever with your lips or in your heart cursed God? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Is this day about you? What will you do this evening? Is it about your enrichment? Is it about your freedom? Is it about you, 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 or your family, your family, your family? Or is it about praising the God of heaven? 
and receiving the blessings that fall out from that, the fountainhead of fulfillment and joy. Honor your father and your mother. How many times have we broken that and how thankful we are we don't have a ledger constantly reminding us us of it all. Speaking to Haddon a week ago, we're riding in the car and talking about the law because that's what pastors do with their kids. And I said, Haddon, do you think you've broken any of them? He said, Daddy, I break honor your father and mother all the time. I said, yeah, you do. Yes, you do. You shall not kill. Have you done it with your hands or have you done it with your hearts? You shall not commit adultery. Have you done it with your eyes or have you done it with your hands and your body? You shall not steal. Have you done it in your heart? Have you done it with your hands? Have you done it with dishonest reporting? You shall not bear false witness. Have you lied and have your lies harmed others? You shall not covet. Have you wanted the Ferrari that cut you off in traffic? And it's so much deeper than something that surface level. The law accuses us apart from the gospel. Holds up a mirror. It says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Have you fulfilled all of these? The requirement is the fulfillment of all of them. Be perfect as your God in heaven is perfect. Perfection is the standard. An honest person reading the law will simply say, O Lord my God, I am undone. I am a sinner. Oh Lord, forgive me. Help me. Help me, Lord, help me. I desperately need you. That's Paul's point. That's Paul's point. That the law, apart from grace, accuses us. But you may ask the question, well, what about the law within grace? Paul doesn't touch upon this, but as a preacher... I want to say this additional thing, and it's, it's this. That for the Christian, when they see the law, they don't only see that they've broken the law and that they need a Savior, but they see the Savior. They don't only see the wrath of God, but they see the suffering of the Savior. They don't only see the requirements of God for our living, but they see the things that Christ has done. They don't only see the wrath of God against those who break the law, they also see the pleasures of God that we have access to by faith in Jesus. They see Jesus when they read the law. No longer just an accuser, but a prophet, a herald of King Jesus. You see, we have all these strongholds, all these false things. Abraham, David in the kingdom, circumcision. We even have promises and covenants. All of these things that God has given, all of these things that God has intended for our good, None of these things being the article of our salvation. Faith in Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way a person may be accounted as righteous, made right with God. Would you put your faith in Christ? Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and for their teaching. That, Lord, we can take your word up and know that it doesn't contradict.
that it doesn't mislead. Oh, Lord, that it points us to the truth and to your Son and to your kindness and to your mercy, your grace, your compassion, your love. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us in the weakness of who we are to simply look on Christ and love him, cling to him, O Lord, that we might grow in grace and live a life after you. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.